If you've been with us in our study of James, this has been a great study. I said at the introduction, James is one of the most beloved books because James is such a practical book. And it's no surprise because this book of practice comes from the hand or the, 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 the writing of a pastor. One of the reasons people through the centuries have loved this book is because James has encouraged and challenged the church in some really key ways. If you think through the book, James has challenged conventional ways of thinking about life's struggles. James has challenged a common misunderstandings about our temptations. James has challenged religious hypocrisy. James has challenged social economic discrimination. James has challenged religious inconsistency. And James has even challenged spiritual adultery. And all through those challenges, modern Christians can say, amen, in the discrimination, hypocrisy, inconsistency. God save us from all those things, brother. Even non-Christians can agree that those are, are evils in our society, to be discriminatory to people for, for foolish reasons, to, be, to exercise hypocrisy, to be inconsistent. Those are things we would all agree on. But this morning, James is going to challenge something that I think many Christians still have not submitted. Oh, thank you. The lights are on. Uh, the, the submitted to the Lordship of Christ. James is going to challenge personal autonomy. To be more specific, James is going to challenge the way we use our time and spend our money. James is going to challenge us in the most practical of ways. Now, in my years as a pastor, I have noticed a dramatic shift in people's uh, attitudes towards things. Years ago, almost 20 years ago, when I was getting into the pastorate, Talking about things of purity and people's struggles with pornography was a big challenge. To, to get to the conversation required a lot of relational gymnastics and skill to, to get them willing to talk. It's a very sensitive topic. Now, however, because of its prevalence and it's so everywhere, it's actually kind of flipped. People are very comfortable talking about their struggle with pornography. That's a huge win. I think that's really great. The sensitive issue I have found now, however, is that people get really kind of defensive when you talk to them about how they use their time and spend their money. Hey, I got no problem you talk about my porn problem, but don't talk to me about sleeping in or how much I spend at Starbucks. That's off limits. As if somehow our time and money were our time and money. You remember James from last week's study. He was exposing the divided heart of these believers, and he called it, using this vivid metaphor of adultery, and he said the way to come back to faithfulness to your Lord is to draw near to Him. And you remember in, in verses uh, eight, seven, eight, and nine, he gave this rapid-fire succession of ways that we can come back to God, and it culminated in humility. Remember verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. And then verses 11 and 12 was the first evidence of this kind of gospel-fueled humility. You don't speak negatively, evilly of your brother and sister. You're no longer judging them because you realize you're not the judge, that there is only one judge, and that's the Lord Himself. Well, the connection from last week to our passage this week, chapter 4, 13 to chapter 5, verse 6, is a continuing application of this gospel-driven humility. We stop living 
as if God has nothing to do or doesn't matter in the plans that we make or the way we use our finances. And we recognize that He's sovereign over all of it. He's sovereign over our time, our schedule, and He's sovereign over our money as well. And that we merely steward all of that on His behalf. But living in light of this truth, friends, is so much more than simply throwing God a bone and showing up on church on Sundays and putting a few dollars in the plate. It's way more than that. James intends to challenge one of our contemporary culture's most prized and dear values. You know what that is? The belief that your life is yours. Academics call it autonomy. Psychologists call it the sovereign self. The Bible calls it idolatry. And, and if we want to understand what it means to humble ourselves before the Lord, and I hope you do, I hope when James says, and when he says, God will lift you up, you say, I want God to exalt me. I want God to lift me up as well. James is going to give two practical things we can do to allow God to do that very thing, and it has to do with the way we use our time and the way we spend our money. Now, a little bit of a disclaimer here. James is going to get in our grill but what, because what's more practical than the way we schedule our lives and what we do? What hits home more than the way we spend our money? And so James is going to really make us think about what it means to submit our lives to Christ by going to the most practical thing. He's going to make you answer the question, how should you think about your time and how should you think about your money? So those are the two points we're going to make this morning. How should you think about your time, and how should you think about your money? Chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, James, he, this is where he talks about our time. He begins this section with a, a call for them to reconsider. He's calling these people to reconsider, and then he develops this picture, a, a picture that's very familiar to the people in the first century. It is a picture of, of uh, doing business and moving and transactions and all these things that were very common in that time. You see, because of the, what's called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, and the amazing infrastructure that the empire had developed, their road system, there was a boom of economic activity and business and, and people moving around the, the ancient world. So what James is talking about here of this merchant making plans for his business and moving his family was a very common uh, reality at that time. People would often leave Palestine and move to other parts of the empire in search of financial security and gain. We would call that climbing the corporate ladder, right? And it isn't a new concept. That's been around since they invented the ladder. They were doing it back then. But just like now, the problem is people are climbing that ladder without even recognizing that it's on the wrong wall. And James says, I'm going to give you two reasons to make you realize this lifestyle, you're on the wrong wall. You've got the ladder you're climbing on the wrong wall. Number one, in verse 14, they're both there. He says, the uncertainty of your life and the brevity of your life. You see, James is addressing the all-too-common human tendency to live as if eternity does not exist, of living our lives from an entirely earthly, this-worldly perspective. 
Remember, he addressed that in chapter 3 when he was talking about wisdom and the way, the way we think about our world. And he said, there is a kind of wisdom that's just earthly. It's not anti-God, but by the same token, it's not thinking about God at all. And James wants to address that right now. Friends, the question we have to ask ourselves is, are you a, a functional calendar atheist? Now, yes, you might be a professed Christian, but when it comes to thinking about your schedule, are you just a functional calendar atheist? Or are you a, a vacation atheist? Or are you a weekend getaway atheist? You're not thinking that God's sovereignty extends to the way you plan your life. You're not thinking that God has more to do and more to say about your lives than just 90 minutes on a Sunday morning or maybe two hours with your community group. You're not realizing that God has a plan that includes the whole aspect of every hour of our lives. And so we go through our day planning it out, but not realizing, Lord, is this what you want? Is this best for your purposes? Is this part of your plan? Do we think about the way God wants to use our time more than on just Sunday mornings? And if so, does it actually show in the way you calendar yourself out, particularly compared to someone who doesn't know the Lord? How different is your life other than that 90 minutes on Sunday morning than someone who doesn't know the Lord at all in the way you spend your time? And James is saying, you need to realize this. We can't just make these plans as if God and eternity doesn't exist. Now, to be clear, James is not against planning. James is not saying you shouldn't make plans. What he's saying is, you shouldn't make plans thinking you are the sole decider of what is really important and what should set the agenda for the way you spend your time. That's what he's getting at here. And he actually says in verses 13 to 17, to think this way about your life as if God has no bearing on what you're doing, James says it's, it's arrogance and it's, does he use the word evil there? Does he say evil and arrogance? All such boasting is evil. And so he says, I, I want to plan a different way for you. And so by these three verses, James is going to give us a method. If we want God to matter in the way we live our lives, there are four things that we need to believe and remember. Here they are. Number one, and this is coming from verses 13 through 15. Number one, your life is unpredictable. Number one, your life is unpredictable. In the words of that, that sagely prophet Forrest Gump, Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Now, when I was growing up, C's candy was a big thing. You guys remember C's candy? They got one in the mall. And they had that white box. And I remember in the 70s, I think if you flip the box open now, they would tell you what's actually in the candies. Back then, they didn't. So you could grab a piece of chocolate, and you could bite into it, and it would be like that. Uh, like chocolate mousse cream. You're like, oh, that's awesome. And grab another one. You bite into it, and it's like mint fruitcake gel dust or something like that. And you're like, this is horrible. But it looks identical on the surface. But you never know what you're going to get. And I think they probably got so many complaints, they finally had to print it on the backside of the lid now. Because people don't want that kind of unpredictability, but that is life. Good, bad, or otherwise, life is unpredictable. Friends, I, I don't, just think, last week, last week there were 59 people, 59 people who were excited about the concert they were going to go to that night. They had no idea that life would give way to eternity by the end of the evening. 
Nobody could have conceived what would have happened in Las Vegas. And boy, there are stories after stories after stories, bad and good, that life is unpredictable. And James is saying, how can you talk about all the things you want to do without realizing you have no idea what even tomorrow will bring? Number one, we have to remember and believe life is unpredictable. Number two, your life is too short. Your life is too short. Now, I know the irony about this is the younger you are, the less you actually believe that, but the older you are, the more you realize that, right? Yeah. I, I remember being 16 yesterday. It was, the problem is that was 31 years ago. But life is so short. Let me do a thought experiment. Raise your hand, okay, raise your hand if you can tell me the first name of your great-grandfather. Raise your hand. One, two, Whoa! Okay, raise it high so we can see this. You can say the first name of your great-grandfather? Who was it, David? What was it? Sam. What about you, Les? John. John. Okay, raise your hand if you don't know the first name of your great-grandfather. Okay, the majority. Here's my point. We live lives as if they are so important and so significant what we're doing, and even our family your great-grandchild won't even know your first name. Our lives are too unpredictable. Our lives are too short. Number three, our lives are too feeble. So this past summer for fun, I was reading a biography. I read the biography of Steve Jobs, and I love biographies. So in my study, I have a shelf full of biographies. And, and what's great about biographies is the titles that they give to the person's life because that title is supposed to be descriptive of their life. So, for example, some, one of my favorite biographies is that one by C.H. Spurgeon, The Prince of Preachers, because he was a phenomenal preacher. Other biographies like Kurt Cobain, Heavier Than Heaven. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, Duke, The Life and Times of Duke Kahanamoku, The Surfer, Waterman. And then Tina Fey has this funny one called Bossy Pants. What would be the title of the biography of your life? James has a title for it. You know what it is? Mist, The Life and Times of a Vanishing Existence. That's what he says. Look at verse 14. You're making all these plans. You don't know the future. What's your life? You are a mist. You're just a mist that appears for a little time, and guess what? Then it vanishes. It's gone. I remember when I was a young man, 22 years old, I was driving a forklift. I was a forklift operator by day, rock star by night, or rock star by night trying. And I worked for Time Warner Video, so I had access to all their videos and all their books. So I was reading through Dante's Inferno. It was a fascinating read from the uh, uh, Middle Ages about a man's trip to hell, apparently. But I'll never forget a scene. I forget what level of hell Dante was in. But he was in a boat and just going across this kind of, I think it was the River Styx or something. And there were all these spirits trying to escape from this sludge and dark storms. And one finally got from the water and he came near Dante. And Dante and Terry said, what do you want? Who are you? What do you need? And apparently, I forget which character it was, but it was a well-known character from history. And the spirit says, I want to be remembered remember me. And Dante had no idea who he was. And the Spirit said, remember me. No one remembers me. And he was pulled back down into the sludge. And I remember reading that thinking, life, the successes, the things that we have in this life are so vain. And Dante beautifully captured that. And James is saying, your life's a mist. 
you're living for the things of this life and having that mentality, it is a mist that will vanish. So much so that your great-grandchild won't even know your first name more than likely. So, life is too unpredictable. Your life is too short. Your life is too feeble. And fourth and finally, very important, your life is entirely in God's hand. Verse 15, instead, you want to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Your life is entirely in God's hands. Live like it is. Live like it is. That doesn't mean you, you just put on a tagline, if the Lord wills, like you know, as, if, as if godliness were sloganeering. That's not what he's saying. It's a recognition that really my life, everything, it's in God's hands. And, and so when I make my plans, when I plan my day, whether it's a vacation or career or what I'm doing this week, is there any sense in which, God, what would you have of me this week? How am I using the time you've given me? James is saying, to think anything less than that, and boy, and this is where he gets in our grill. He says, to think anything less than that, what does verse 17 say, friends? It is sin. There's a verse here that everyone's familiar with. It's verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. But normally what we talk about, do we actually recognize that in context? In context, what's James talking about? the way we plan our lives. See, a lot of times we use that verse and we, make, we talk about good but somewhat abstract theological concepts, sins of omission, sins of commission. You, you know it's wrong, you do it. You know the right, but you don't do it. But James is saying, if you're living your life as if time were yours to do with what you please, it's, what's he say? Sin. It's not me saying it. James, through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, is saying, if you are living your life and you're not taking into account that's God's life that you're stewarding, that's sin. Wow. Friends, we got to move on to the second major point here, but the applications of this are phenomenal. I mean, it goes from how you steward Sunday mornings and your regular church attendance to how you are raising your children to the career that you encourage in your spouse how you are discipling your grandchildren, everything, how you are stewarding your retirement, everything falls under God's domain. And to not realize that, to not know that your life is in God's hands and He has purposes for that, and to do, you know, the right to do and you not do it, James says, is sin. Friends, a lot of times we need to repent because we live in a culture that is telling us your life is yours, Right? Um, have it your way, go for the gusto, um, you know, just, you know, you need a break today. All of this bombarding us, telling us who's the center of our world, us. And James is saying, that's not it. It's the Lord's. Your time is the Lord's. Let me give you a, a, th a last thought experiment before we move on to point two. If what you're doing now will not matter in 100 years, should it matter so much now? Now, around the dinner table, as I'm working some of these out, my kids were like, all right, no school, because we're not going to need school in 100 years. That's not what I'm getting at. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm saying is that how you use your time ought to be in direct proportion to the calling and purposes of God in your life. 
Let me say that again. How you use your time ought to be in direct proportion to the calling and purposes of God in your life. So if God's plan for you is to be a business leader, then you need to be a great student and pour yourself into that. If God's plan to you for you is to be a public servant, then you need to learn about our history and public service and all of those things. But I suspect that most of our lives are, are, are spent whittling away on things that ultimately in God's plan and scheme of things do not matter. So, as the Lord ministers to you on that, think about that. If what I'm doing now in a hundred years will not matter, should it matter so much now? James says, remember your life is in God's hand. Live like it is. And then he switches gears as we move into chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. He says, this is how you should think about your time, that it's not your time, it's the Lord's. Now, he wants you to think about how to think about your money, and he makes a subtle transition. Notice in the first section, he's calling his people to reconsider their use of time. And as he switches to chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, he's calling his readers to repent of how they're using their money. Now, even though we have a different chapter, and sometimes those can be helpful, sometimes they're unhelpful because we think the thought is separated, but it's not, we know these two are connected by the repeated phrase that begins both sections. Notice in chapter 4, verse 13, James says, come now, you who say, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, come now, you who are rich. He's connecting these two ideas. Our time and money are intricately wed together. Now, there is, however, a slight difference. In chapter 4, 13 to 17, James is directly addressing his readers, but in chapter 5, 1 through 6, he's indirectly addressing them. What I mean by that is, there were not very many rich in the congregations of James, these churches. As a matter of fact, you remember in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, James was saying, why are you fawning over the wealthy people? Isn't the wealthy that oppress you? So the majority of them were not wealthy. The majority of them, as we talked about, were uh, slaves, former slaves, merchants, barely making a living, trying to get by. Uh, Some were indentured servants. But what James is doing, this is kind of the way the prophets wrote in the Old Testament. It's called a prophetic oracle. He's writing against the rich, against the wealthy, and we'll explain that a little bit more in the hopes that God's people are listening to how God views that oppression, and so that God's people knows what God feels about that kind of lifestyle, and that God's people will not adopt that attitude or behavior. And that happens all throughout the the kind of the prophetic books. It wasn't like as if Isaiah went on a complete massive speaking tour to all the nations. It was written so God's people would know what God feels on these topics. And so that's why we see in James chapter 5, verse 1, it sounds like a prophet from the Old Testament. Come now, you rich, weep, howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Wow, that's heavy stuff, because this is a prophetic judgment that James is recording. So James is not expecting that a lot of non-Christian wealthy merchants are listening to this. He's expecting the people of God to hear it and go, oh my gosh, that's how God thinks about this, then I need to align my thinking that way too. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, now, but again, again, just like in chapter 4, 13 to 17, James is not saying wealth is wrong. Just like James is not saying planning is wrong. As a matter of fact, in verse 2 and following, we see that the judgment that comes upon them is what they didn't 
or did do with their wealth that was the problem. We, we really need to understand that. Because so often, God's issues aren't the ones we see on the surface, but so often the driving heart behind it. And we see here, James highlights three specific sinful traits that we all can be tempted by when it comes to wealth. Look at verses 2 and 3. James addresses the sinfulness of hoarding wealth. Uh, Verse 4, James addresses the sinfulness. uh, uh, It's called basically injustice of how we acquire our wealth. And then finally, uh, verse 5, the sinfulness of extravagance. What does hoarding and this injustice and extravagance all have in common? It is a motivation for me, for getting my stuff and has no thought of others. The biblical view of wealth, friends, James shows us this here, is that wealth is to be used, not merely amassed, right? Wealth is to be used, not merely amassed. And James is so upset. God is so upset. They have so much riches. He says, it's rotting. Now, that seems odd to us. Riches don't rot. But keep in mind, in an agrarian economy, a lot of your wealth was based on your crops. James is saying, you have so many crops, more than you could possibly eat, that it's just sitting there in a rotting pile of mulch. That's what he means is that your riches are rotting. They have so much clothes. They have so much clothes that they can't even use them. It's becoming moth-eaten. How many shoes can you actually wear, by the way, right? How many suits do you really need? How many board shorts do you have to buy? James is saying you have so many of them, you've forgotten about them, and the moths are eating them up. You have so much gold and silver, James says, it's corroding. In other words, you're just not polishing and they're tarnished. It's looking bad. You have so much of it, you don't even realize it. I mean, how many hobbies do we have where our gear is just falling apart in the garage? Or how many many surfboards do we need? How many cars do we need? You can't wax them all. They're just sitting there collecting dust. James says, you have so much stuff. All that money for all that stuff, and it's sitting there. And James gives this vivid picture of, of like judgment day of a stockpile of rotting, moth-eaten, corroded wealth and riches. It's like a massive overflow that James says is actually stands in judge. It's evidence against you for judgment day. He says it's so much evidence, it's so overwhelming in verse three. It's like a fire that just consumes you. You cannot deny it. It's just there. As James says, you have to realize your wealth is not your own. To make it worse for these merchants, James is saying, you got your wealth on the backs of these poor, mistreated, abused workers, verse 4. There are many ways we can apply this in our current culture and context, but I think the driving thing we need to realize that James is saying, wealth achieved without integrity is a dangerous way to live. Getting wealth without integrity is a dangerous way to live, which is why I'm so grateful uh, Don and Jeff, they're doing a Bible study business for the glory of God because we need to understand how do we do business for God's glory with integrity and with ethics and as a means of witnessing to the business world. And if you're interested, talk to Don or call the church office because that's what we need to be doing, taking our faith into all spheres of life. And then look at verse 5. 
the, the extravagance that James is condemning. Verse 5 in chapter 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Oh, look at this last, next phrase. You have fatted your hearts in a day of slaughter. When it comes to wealth, we need to be those who have so we can be those who give. The irony of these people is that they were hoarding this wealth, according to verse 3, storing it up. And they think, we're thinking it's going to be for their ease and comfort. And James says, no, that stockpile is actually going to be against you and it's going to condemn you because you lived a life thinking only of yourself and all the finances I gave you, however much, however little, you spent it all on yourself. You did nothing for those who needed. You didn't spend it on kingdom purposes. It was all for yourself and it'll stand in judgment against you. And I don't know if James was thinking about what Paul said in Romans 2, but I want to show you Romans 2, 5, what Paul says. He writes, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, again, I don't, I don't know if Paul was thinking about wealth. I don't know if, if James was making that connection, but they're using the same kind of language. You're just heaping it up, just stockpiling this stuff, and it's not going to be for your comfort what you think it is. Ironically, it'll be against a judgment against you. And again, in verse 5, the end of verse 5, as if to make the point really clear, by spending your money on just yourself and not recognizing God's purposes for it, you have, in effect fatted your hearts like the day of slaughter. This is basically what the word picture that comes to my mind when I read that. It's like going to a turkey farm in October. You imagine if, if turkeys could think and talk what they're thinking about in October. Wow, life is awesome. I just hang out and this guy brings me corn. He doesn't want me to exercise. I just sit and they feed me. I sit in this hay thing with a little lamp over me. This is the way it's supposed to be. They have no idea that Thanksgiving is coming. They are just being fattened up. Why? For the slaughter. We don't want to be those kinds of people. And you can tell James was the half-brother of Jesus because he quotes Jesus a lot. Look at what he says. And James, or he doesn't quote him, but, but the thinking is there. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 21. This is Jesus. Do not lay up yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wow, get this, friend. Get this, get this. Hear this. This is not a wealth is bad, poverty is good kind of message. Jesus believes... Jesus is okay with you having treasure. Jesus actually says, store up treasure. Do that. But he's saying, store it up in the right place. Be wise about this. And the important reality, the last phrase is Jesus knows, because guess what? Where your treasure is, guess what? That's where your heart is. So you can almost draw a direct line between your spending habits and to your spiritual condition. I think you could. Because Jesus says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's at. Look at also this next passage. I mean, this is like, this is exactly the situation that James is addressing. Luke chapter 12. 
and, and this is Jesus speaking, and he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Why? For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And the man thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. That sounds good. Sounds like a good retirement plan, doesn't it? But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Are you rich toward God? Or, or, is, or is it all going down the gullet? I'm just, I'm just living my life, not thinking about what, other, what God might want me to do with this money. I'm putting it down my gullet. Now, it doesn't have to be food. It can be gadgets, cars, clothes, you name it, vacations, you name it. But are we rich toward God? Are you living lean for the kingdom? Or are you being fattened for the slaughter? Is James getting in our grill here? Friend, friends, this, this passage is in effect a reality check for all of us. Don't sing about eternity and then live as if it doesn't exist. Principally, how we use our time and money matter because it's not our time or money. I know our culture tells us that it is, but James, God's Word just told us, no, it's not. It's the Lord's. Now, don't miss here these passages, please. Plan wisely, be productive, make plans, make money, but do it all in conjunction with your faith, not an absentee of it. That's the point. That's the driving message here, is do all these things with your faith at the forefront of them, because how you spend both now, time and money, will echo, echo throughout eternity. It really will. What does it mean to draw near to God in humility, in this gospel-driven humility? It means that we use our time. It means that we use our money for God's purposes and not ours alone. This is his continuing application of what we started with last week. But the great thing is James is not calling any of us to do something that has not been displayed for us already. Last two verses I want us to look at. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Paul writes this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how was that grace? How do we know that grace? Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because Jesus humbled himself, God has ex highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Friends, if anyone had a claim to how to use his life, his time, and his wealth, surely Jesus did. But Jesus also had the corresponding humility to trust his heavenly Father and give them both away so you and I could have true riches, you and I could have true life. James 4.13 to 5.6 is, is his call to us to trust the gospel call to use our time and money for purposes and things that truly matter. Let's do that. Let's pray.
Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.cccLH.org.